Listening to sermons as we go about our days, driving around or doing our work, is a perfect reminder of our Lord's promises and of His mercies. This is the mission of Upper Room Media. To make the Word of God accessible to anybody and everybody. Alright, well good morning everyone and welcome to the well here at STSA. Um, for the next two weeks, we're going to do something a little bit different. Um, we are going to be discussing the liturgy, okay? So get excited, okay? Everybody, I, I, could, I could just feel the excitement in the room, okay? We're going to discuss the liturgy, um, and specifically what we're going to discuss is the beauty of the liturgy, okay? I, I know sometimes uh, when we hear the word liturgy or we think about the liturgy, um, sometimes it has a bad connotation for whatever reason, um, but what we're going to do together over the next two weeks, hopefully is that we're going to discuss the beauty of the liturgy and why the liturgy is so beautiful. The reason we're doing it kind of at this time or at this stage, um, like Larry mentioned earlier, it's kind of the end of the year for the, the, like the Coptic year. So it's a good time for those who have been to liturgy before or have attended liturgy before a million times, a thousand times, whatever, to kind of refresh our minds, reset. Um, but also for those who have never attended. Okay, I kind of want you to um, understand what you're getting into before you walk into a liturgy. Uh, so today we're going to kind of talk at like a macro high level approach, what the liturgy is, like the themes of the liturgy or like how to understand the liturgy so that like either you're resetting your mindset or that you're prepared as you walk into liturgy for the first time. Um, and then next week we'll get into the practical and go into a little bit more detail. The reason that we are so focused on the liturgy here in the Orthodox Church is because that is the way that we worship, okay? If we had, we have a lot of things that we do here, like specifically at STSA that we love, okay? Like, we love the well. Anybody doesn't love the well, okay? We, we all love the well. We love groups, okay? We love Sunday school. We love all those things, but truthfully, if we had none of those things, we would still have to show up on Sundays for the liturgy because that's the way that we worship. That's the way the church was designed from the very beginning. St. Ignatius in the second century, desc describes what the Sunday gathering looked like. Okay, so keep in mind, this is the second century. And listen and see if you can recognize some of the things that he's saying and what we do today. And on the day called Sunday, okay, so good so far, we're here on the right day, okay? On the day called Sunday, all who live in cities or in the country gather together to one place. And as a stsa -er, I appreciate this very much because we have people from all over the place, okay? We don't all just live here in Arlington, we have people all over the place. People come from Maryland, people come from wherever. Some people visit from Richmond, like people all over the place. They gather together in one place and the memoirs of the apostles or the writings of the prophets are read. Then when the reader has ceased, the overseer verbally, verbally instructs and exhorts to the imitations of these good things. So what do you see so far? You see people gathering on Sunday. There's readings, okay, that are happening. So people are, somebody's reading, some of the readings from the scripture. And then after that, you get a sermon, okay? So, so far, so good. Looks pretty familiar. Then when we all rise together and pray, when our prayer is ended, bread and wine and water are brought, and the overseer in like manner offers prayers and thanksgivings according to his ability, and the people assent saying, Amen. This is very important. And there's a distribution to each and a participation of that over which thanks have been given. So what we see, and it's a little bit out of order in our current context, but what we see is that there's readings involved, okay? Then there's a sermon delivered. Then after that, there's prayers over the bread and wine. And then there's prayers outside of, there's prayers specific to the bread and wine. And then there's other prayers, okay? And then the people are saying amen. They're participating in the prayers. It's not just one person praying. It's not just one person praying or a couple people praying. It's not just one person praying. The people are praying, okay? That's the amen. 
And then there's a distribution. Then people are participating in communion. They're receiving the Eucharist. The way they did this was very structured. Okay, sometimes when we hear the word structure, we get like uncomfortable. Structure's okay. Okay, like at ease. Structure's okay. As long as we're doing it from our hearts and we're not just going through the motions. So what you see here is something that is very clear and distinct in like the second century that you can almost take like exactly our parts of the liturgy and just kind of place them into this template that St. Ignatius is telling us about. They didn't gather haphazardly. They had a plan. They had a mission, why they were there. And if you think it was just second century or later on, we would be wrong, okay? The apostles themselves, okay, and Larry mentioned this as well, as they ministered or as they liturgy to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then having fasted and prayed, they laid hands on them and they sent them away. What we see here again is a structured form of prayer. And the word minister there is, is literally liturgy, like they liturgied together and they fasted. Um, and what we see again is actually there's an ordination of sorts that's happening during their service. Okay, so again, when we have our liturgical prayers here, there's uh, ordinations happen within the liturgical context. So we see a lot of similarities of what's happening. Sometimes we think wrongfully that the Old Testament is very structured, okay, that there was like prayers and rules and rites and we just went through the tabernacle and all that stuff. But then like Jesus came and it was kind of like free flowing, free for all, no structure. That's actually not how it was at all. That's not how the church was set up. It was actually a continuation. But it was given, everything was given a new meaning. So the way that they understood how they were going to pray wasn't just, we no longer have structure for prayer. In fact, it says that the apostles would go at the ninth hour to pray, okay, in the synagogue. So again, there was structure for prayer. So they didn't just forego the structure, but everything that they had learned in the Old Testament had become now new. It had a completely new meaning. Jesus himself wasn't against structure because he gave us the Lord's Prayer, okay? And we recite that approximately how many times in the church? Any guesses? A million, okay? I don't actually have the actual number. It's a million times in the church. We say it so many times, there's no point in counting. But it's a structured prayer that the Lord gave us himself and gave us this to his disciples that we hold on to and we treasure, and that's why we apply it. So the liturgy and the way that we worship is very biblical, okay? It is very structured, and some people say monotonous or boring or whatever. We're going to go, my hope, my hope is that as we go through these next two weeks is that, again, that mindset shift um, completely, uh, th going through the series helps us have that mindset shift. Um, so to start, if we're going to change our mindset towards what the liturgy is, we understand it's biblical, it's historical, and we could do a million, like, like uh, a well series on, on this alone, but we'll kind of just leave it at that. What is it about the liturgy? Like, why is it that God designed a, a way for us to worship that's that? Like, wouldn't it have been easier to do something else? Like, you ever wonder that? Okay, fine, the liturgy is biblical and it's historical and the early church did it. Okay, why the liturgy? Like, it seems odd that this is the form of prayer, of worship that God has chosen for us. I think there's a lot of reasons, okay, and we're going to go through them, but I think it starts with one main reason, okay, one main reason, and everybody's going to be super excited about this one main reason. The one reason that we have that liturgical, that, word, that type of worship is this. You are not the primary audience. You are not the primary audience. How about that for an inviting message? Welcome to the church. Come into our church. Yes, come. We're welcoming you and, and we love you. And come to our liturgy. You're not the primary audience, okay? That's evangelism 101. You're not the primary audience. That's actually, like, that's the truth. There's no way around it. Any way that you try to go around it, it comes back to this. 
we're not the primary audience. And that's what worship actually is. If you, like we just say the word worship now, it's become like a, like a Christianese thing like that we just say, like worship. But worship means that I'm acknowledging some other being, okay, that I am like I'm, I'm focused and I am not the primary audience. I'm focused on someone else. To me, that's actually part of the beauty of the liturgy. Did you know that I actually think this is very beautiful, that I come to church and I participate in liturgy and I'm not the primary audience. I think that that's very, very beautiful. You are needed. You're wanted. Like as the body of Christ, we're all, we're all wanted here. We're, we're, it's, it's amazing to be here together and to pray together, but we're not the primary audience. We weren't intended to be. And we actually see this very clearly in the church rites. Okay, you guys maybe have heard me talk about this before. When we are gathered together in worship, whether, you've, again, if you've attended liturgy before or you haven't, when we gather together in liturgy and we're starting to pray over, like, towards the altar, where's the priest standing? The priest standing in which direction? Am I facing you? I'm facing this way, right? Because I love you. Like, I love everybody here. The church is great. You're not my audience, okay? You love me, hopefully, okay, or at least tolerate me, okay? I'm not your primary audience, like, you're not here to look at me, and I'm here to, like, like we're worshiping God, right? He's the focus. It's not about what I want to do. It's about what God calls us to do. Okay, it's not about what I want to do. It's about what God calls us to do. And there's a lot of wisdom in that, that I'm not the primary audience. Think about your life for a second, how we make most decisions, okay? And I was thinking to myself, just basic day-to-day human, like, easiest decisions, like the easiest decisions, if you wanted to really focus on most of your decisions and you were honest with yourself, they're purely selfish. Like most of our day-to-day decisions, like even the easy ones, like what should I eat today? It's based on what I want. What coffee shop should I go to? Which coffee place I like the most? What, you know, uh, a show I should watch? Based on me, again, football's going to start soon. We're going to watch some football, okay? Like I'm not going to lie. Like it's just based on what you want. Most of the stuff that we do is selfish. Most of the stuff that we do is selfish. Most of the stuff, most of the things, even the small detail, like the teeny, teeny, tiny decisions that we make, most of them selfish based on what I want to do. So the church comes and says, okay, come. And God comes and says, okay, come. We're going to pray together. And the, the church body and all the prayers are done together, not individual. And say, okay, come. We're going to join together in prayer. And we're going to get excited by joining together in prayer. And what we're going to pray for, of course, you're going to pray for things for yourself, like Lord, have mercy. Lord, forgive us. All that stuff is true. But you're also going to pray for things that you probably don't think about that often. You're going to pray for the departed, those who have passed away. You're going to pray for those who are sick. You're going to pray for people who are traveling. You're going to pray for uh, uh, like those who are sojourners or like immigrants or whatever you want to categorize that as. You're going to pray for farmers. You're going to pray for widows. You're going to pray for orphans. You might not even know a widow. You might not even know an orphan. It doesn't matter because it's not about you. We're here together, gathered together, and we're going to pray together for all those people, for the body of Christ, for every single person, for the world. We sometimes think, when I say you're not the primary audience, God is. Like, there's, I don't know if you guys ever have this, like, um, annoying voice in your head sometimes where logically you, you hear some weird arguments in your mind, okay? So if you ever had this weird argument in your mind, okay, just, maybe it's just me, Okay. If God is a primary audience and we're all here gathered together, like, is it because God really needs that prayer? Like, is God like an egotistical God? Like, what kind of God are we worshiping? That we all have to get together and, like, he's the primary audience. Like, we're all focused on him. Does God need
eat that, okay? I know I'm a terrible person, okay? But this is sometimes how my body, my, my brain works, okay? So does God need that? Does God need our worship? You know, there's some religions out there that'll tell you, you were created to worship God. Is that what Christianity says? Were we created just for worship? I see some blank stairs. No, okay. No. God doesn't need our worship. He wants our worship. He desires our worship. He desires intimacy. But we're not created for that, just for that. Like, we might think that we're created just to worship God. God doesn't need anything from us. Did you know that God doesn't need anything from you? God doesn't need a single thing from you. We think God wants to take from us. He doesn't. God doesn't need anything from us. God in and of himself is complete. He's full. He doesn't need anything from us. The liturgy, the way it's designed, is because God is trying to help us be selfless like him. Be a giver, not a taker. Because in our nature, in our human nature, we like to take. We're selfish. What's in it for me? What what am I going to get out of it? But God says, no, you follow me. And the way you follow me, even in like this liturgical prayer, this, this worship, is that it's not about you. In the Gospel of St. Matthew, Jesus says the following, For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This is a verse that maybe some of us are familiar with. The idea of preserving or saving my life or living a selfish life is completely anti-gospel. It's the complete opposite of what Christ preached. You know, the context in which Jesus is, is saying this is that he basically has just told his disciples that he's going he's gonna to die, okay? And then St. Peter rebukes him, okay? That, that's the part I always, like, makes me uncomfortable. St. Peter rebukes Jesus. He says, you can't say that. Like, you can't say that. And Jesus, and Jesus looks at them, looks at all the disciples and says, like me, if you want to be my disciple, you're going to have to take up your cross and follow me. And then he says this statement, for whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus is trying to help us. Jesus is trying to save us from ourselves. That's what the liturgy is. Why we're not the primary audience? Lord needs we don't need more attention. Lord knows we we don't need to be more selfish. God is trying to help us. He's trying to get rid of that selfishness that's inside of us. So that's the first thing. I'm not the primary audience. The second thing, if you wanted to summarize, and today, again, like we're kind of taking a macro approach at what the liturgy is, the themes of the liturgy, the big concepts of the liturgy, and then next week, hopefully, we'll dive into practical. The second thing, if you wanted to summarize a central theme of what the liturgy is, it's this. We offer ourselves to God, and he offers himself to us. We offer ourselves to God, and he offers himself to us. It's very simple. This is the central theme of the liturgy in everything that we do, is I offer. I come, and I say, Lord, I'm offering myself. Like, it's not about me being selfish. It's not about me taking. I offer, I offer, I offer. And God says, okay, then I'll fill you with myself. We come and we offer. Maybe you come to a liturgy, and I always say, every liturgy you should think of, like, what you're offering to God. Like, the people in Israel, when in the Old Testament, when they came and they sacrificed, they had an offering, like a physical, tangible offering. And we offer bread and wine. Yes, the church offers the bread and wine. But also, spiritually, we should come offering something. We have to come offering something. And maybe that day, there's a specific day, I come and I offer a repentant heart. Maybe I come in a day and I offer thanksgiving. I'm so thankful for something God has done in my life. Maybe I come and I offer a prayer for somebody else. Maybe I come and I offer a heart of joy, a heart of praise, whatever it may be. 
But the kicker is that whatever I offer is like this much. Like I just told you guys, it's not about you. You're not part of my audience. Like be selfless. Okay, great. We're going to offer and we're going to offer and we're going to offer. What you offer is this much. What you get is infinite. Whatever you offer, and it takes work to offer, repentant heart, joy, praise, whatever. It's this much. But what you get, infinite. We come and we offer ourselves, but we're impure. We're not deserving. We're sinners. And God says, very good. Now I'm going to offer myself, holy, fully, like, like nothing is more full or, or full of satisfaction and, and guaranteed for a life of joy than me. That's what you get. You know, in the prayers, um, there's a lot of like silent prayers that the priest prays. Um, and before every like service, if especially like the, the priest that's celebrating that service, the main celebrant, he prays a prayer where he's basically asking God, okay, he's asking God to forgive him, okay? The priest isn't there as like, uh, um, sometimes we think of like hierarchy as like this way, like, you know, people, then like deacons, then priests, then bishops, then pope, then God. No, okay? It's people, okay, including hierarchy, God, okay? That's how it works. People, then God. So the priest comes, and he's there performing the service that God instructed him to perform. But as he is doing that, before he does that, he says, Lord, forgive me. Lord, you know I'm a sinner. Lord, don't let this be for my condemnation. And also, Lord, like, don't let the people not receive something because of me. Like, that's not right. It's not their fault. That's my sin, Lord. Don't count it against them. That's all like the theme of the prayers for the priest. That's pretty much it. Okay, it's like, I'm sorry. Forgive me. Allow me, Lord, to this amazing ministry and the service. And don't let your people be like tainted by my, by my corruption, by my evil. And God looks around and he says, very good. Everybody's ready. Everybody's ready to offer. I'm going to offer something back. I'm going to offer myself. And the verse that comes to mind is a verse that we all love. Okay, that when, when I think about this concept of we offer basically nothing and God offers himself back. It's a verse that we love, okay? Even if you know nothing about nothing, about church or whatever, you've at least seen the football players with the John 3.16, okay? Like everybody knows like John 3.16. John 3.16 says what? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Think about that for a second. I know it's a verse that we've just repeated so much. Think about that for a second. God loved which world? This world. This world. This crazy world, like darkness everywhere. And I'm part of the world, by the way. Like It's not like out there and in here. No, no, I'm part of that darkness. I'm part of that evil. This world, this crazy world. God loved that world. He loved it so much. Well, how much did you love it, God? I loved it so much that I gave my only begotten son. This doesn't compare. Okay, I'm, I'm going to just share this. It doesn't compare. I have one son and one daughter. What would it take, okay, and maybe parents can relate. What would it take for me to say, I'm letting go of my son and daughter, and I know, like, hopefully Sherry's not watching this at home, I'm offering them for your life. Like, like le legitimately. Like, if we had an option, okay, we're not going to go down like a movie scenario, okay, but if it, it was going to cost me my son or my daughter for someone else, how, like, how much love would it take? That's unbelievable. Like, we even think about it from, a, like, human terms, it doesn't make sense. But God looks at it, and he says, yes, I'll happily offer my son. You know, when, when it says that Jesus, like some of the hymns, what we say is when, when, when Jesus like, died on the cross, 
that his father smelled a sweet-smelling aroma. Like he was pleased that the son gave up his life because that was the heart of the father and the son, to give up their life for the world. That was the heart, okay? It wasn't like wrath or any of that stuff. It was just love, okay? It was love. In Romans, St. Paul takes this human analogy and he, and he says it this way. He says, For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man one will, for a righteous man will one die. Okay, like that usually doesn't happen. Yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrated his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Let that sink in for a second. Again, we read these verses and we just go through them. Like, let that sink in. What would it take for you to give up the person you love the most for someone else? What would it take? You would have to love them. You would not only have to love them, but if we're being honest, you'd have to deem them worthy of it. They'd have to be worthy of it. You're going to give up your son or daughter for somebody that's not worthy of it? But God says, I will. That's what I did. You aren't worthy. You're still not worthy. But that's what I did. What I love about this, this imagery, is this is not a different conversation from the liturgy. That's who we're about to receive. That's who we're about to experience. This is not just like we're going through the motions. No, the beauty of the liturgy is that the same Christ right there, the one that died for us, the one that came, the one that took flesh, the one that the Father said, I'll send my son, that same Christ is the one that we receive, the one that we have union with during the liturgy. And again, if you're new to orthodoxy, you're kind of just exploring or whatever, that sounds kind of weird. Like, okay, to say bread and wine is receiving Christ sounds strange. But if you look at Scripture, specifically like the, the Gospel of John and other parts of Scripture as well, John chapter 6 for me is like the, the number one place that you can go to, okay, if you want to go read at home, John chapter 6, where Christ explicitly talks about how he is going to give his bread as flesh, okay? And that, that's why the church has always believed that. And there's other parts, of, of course, of Scripture that, that say that as well, including the Last Supper. Um, St. John Chrysostom, an early church father, he says it this way. We receive within us the same body of our Lord Christ that was born in the manger of Bethlehem, the same body that walked on the Sea of Galilee, the same body that was crucified on Calvary, the same body that was resurrected from the tomb, the same body that ascended into heaven and now sits on the right hand of the Father. There is no power in life greater than this. It's a beautiful quote. What St. John is saying is, you're about to receive something amazing. Like when we walk into church, oh, I'm just attending liturgy. Oh my goodness. Do you know what you're about to receive? Like, have you prepared your heart to like come offer something? Like imagine you're, there's no power in life greater than this. Are you ready? Like, and I'm with you. And sometimes I'm guilty of it and I have to wake myself up. Like, am I ready? Am I ready to receive something so special? Something so amazing? What we see in the words of St. John there is that there's no hyperbole. When we say that we receive Christ, there's no hyperbole. It's not mere symbol, okay? Um, and there's a lot of quotes I could have gathered or whatever, but I chose just one more, okay, about how like the early church really did believe this, that what you are receiving is Christ himself. Okay, there's a quote from somebody maybe you've read in history class one time, and he says the following. He says, whoever read in the scripture that my body is the same as a sign or a symbol of my body. So he's defending. He's saying, that doesn't make sense. If Jesus said, this is my body, he could have also said, this is a symbol of my body, or this is a sign of my body. Not one of the fathers of the church, those who are numerous, not one of them ever said, it is only bread and wine. The body and blood of Christ is not there present. None of them said that. 
Certainly, in so many fathers and in so many writings, the negative might at least be found in one of them, had they thought the body and blood of Christ was really not present. But they are all of them unanimous. Who said that quote? Martin Luther, okay, the founder of the Reformation. So we sometimes think, okay, maybe the early church believed this, but then things change. This is very late, okay? The church believed this. The church had no like misunderstanding about what we were doing on Sunday. The church understood very clearly that this, what you're doing on Sunday, is for the purpose of that, is to receive Christ. The church didn't understand or didn't think in terms of symbolic or, or like just a ritual or whatever. Everything had a specific meaning and they were very careful in what they taught. So this, to me, says, if I'm coming to truly receive the Son of God, the, the one who died for me, the one who said, I'm going to, like the Father said, I'm going to give him to you even though you're not worthy of it. I'm coming to receive that on Sunday. I better approach it carefully. And not saying like in fear, but I better approach it with like, like a different mindset, a different like attitude of like, I'm alert. I'm here to offer something. I'm repentant, okay? And like I said, we can't just say, okay, that's great. We're going to receive something great and then offer nothing in return. So that's what liturgical worship is all about. That's what liturgical worship at its core is all about, is that we're going to receive something amazing, something great. And it's designed to get rid of my selfishness, to help me offer something and to give something up because I'm constantly in need of offering something to God. I'm constantly in need of offering something to God. God takes our offering, not because, again, he needs it, but to sanctify us, to cleanse us, to help us. You know, it's the same way that when we talk about, like, giving. Okay, people are like, why do I have to give my money? Okay, and I'm like, you don't have to do anything. Like, you don't, like, nobody's, like, holding a gun to your head. Like, you don't have to do anything, okay? But why do I have to, like, give money, and why do I have to serve, and why do I have to give my time, and whatever? It's the same concept. God doesn't need anything. But I'll tell you what, if you're holding on to money too tight, that could destroy you. Like, if you're holding on to your life too tight and you're not willing to sacrifice any part of your life or your time or whatever, you can just become more and more selfish and more self-focused. And that's no good. And it's the same here. The liturgy is designed to help us because the truth and what God, and the way that God created us and the way that God designed us is this, is that selfishness is going to lead to our emptiness and sacrifice is going to lead to satisfaction. So I've been saying offer, give up, let go of something. And you think, oh, I'm going to be empty. Like, it doesn't make sense. And that's the paradox. The paradox is when you offer, when you give something up, you're actually more full. When you decide to hold on to, like Jesus said, if anybody desires to what? To keep his life, they're going to lose it. If you're going to just focus on keeping, on preserving, then you're going to lose it. St. Paul in Philippians, he says the same thing. He says, let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation taking the form of bondservant. And coming in the likeness of men and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. What we read there, what we see there is sacrifice, offering. And the church and the liturgy and the way that God designed us to worship is saying, imitate me. Follow my footsteps. Offer. When we look at God and we look at what he did for us, you know, I always say, like, we look at Christ, one of the virtues that I, that I look at Christ always in awe. There's obviously everything, but the one that always gets me is humility, God's humility. And I just, like, can't imagine it. Like, we talk about people being humble. Like, you meet somebody and, like, oh, that person's really humble. 
like nobody's really humble. Like no human being is actually humble. Like in my opinion, no human being is actually humble. God is humble. God is up here and he became man. Human beings can try, like we can imitate, but really well, like what our humility is, is like realizing our nature. Okay, we realize like who we actually are. That's like we're, we're, we're sane, okay, is what I would say. But God is actually humble. Like God became man. God died for us. God is giving us the bread and, and, and wine as body and blood. That's humility. The liturgy is not about watching a performance. The liturgy is actually active participation. And we're going to talk about that next week, how we can maximize like our, our participation in the liturgy. But the liturgy is not a performance. You know, sometimes as, as a priest, I'll kind of just share something and don't take this the wrong way. When, especially when we have two priests here and there's the priest here praying. If there's like singing going on, sometimes I'll just do one of these. Just, I'll just look, you know, I'll just do one of these. Okay, don't, don't be scared. Okay, I just, but I want to see how much people are participating. Okay, I'm, I'm curious because if we're just sitting there and like doing one of these and just kind of wondering, like that's not the liturgy. We, like we should be attentive. Like we should be participating. And, and we're going to talk about that next week. Like how can I maximize? And we all get distracted. I'm not saying like never be distracted. Like we all get distracted. But the liturgy is like the, like the more force we come with like in the liturgy, the more we participate together and we're like kind of like just singing together and really into it, the more amazing it is, right? Because it's the work of the people like we just talked about. It's the work of the people. So, you know, if you ever see me looking, that, that's kind of what I'm doing, okay? But sorry. Um, my hope is that in this series, in this short series, over the, like this week and then hopefully next week, today we kind of talked like macro approach of why the liturgy is designed the way it is, okay? And the liturgy is designed the way it is because it's not about us. We're not the primary audience. There's prayers, of course, for us, and we receive so much, but we're not the primary audience God is. And even after God, it's not me, it's everybody else, the people around me, the people that are in need of prayer. And then, of course, I pray for myself as one well and my needs and what I need help with. But my hope is that there's this mindset shift, there's this attitude change that we come rejuvenated, okay, in the new year and maybe in the new building. We'll see when that happens, okay, like hopefully soon. Like we come rejuvenated and we're excited to pray and to pray together with force. And we're coming together to offer something great because we're going to receive something so much greater. Like we're going to receive something amazing. And next week, what we're going to do together, okay, in case you're saying, okay, this sounds nice, but I've been to a million liturgies, okay, and let's be honest, I get distracted, and it's really hard, and I feel like I'm the only one who just doesn't get this liturgy thing. I'd say, you're not, okay? Little secret, everyone gets distracted, okay? There's no such thing as anyone who doesn't get distracted. Everyone gets distracted, okay? But what we can do together is when we prepare our hearts and when we understand how the liturgy is actually like constructed, which we'll go through next week, when we understand the different parts of the liturgy, then we can participate appropriately and get the most out of it. All right, everybody excited about the liturgy? Come on, you guys scream more than that for a touchdown for your favorite football team. Everybody excited? All right, very good. Let's stand up and pray together. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Lord, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for your kindness. We thank you, Lord, for just always being a giver, always giving to us, Lord, when we don't even deserve, always providing for us more than we even imagine, more than we even think of. Even, Lord, things that we don't even notice. You're always just giving and giving and giving. Help us, Lord, become givers like you. Help us imitate that giving, Lord. Help us sacrifice. Help us offer something back. Rid us, Lord, of selfishness that we may have, Lord, in our hearts. And allow us, Lord, to seek you and to seek not just you, Lord, but also those around us that are in need of your help. 
that are in need maybe of, of uh, kindness or compassion or forgiveness, whatever it may be, Lord. Lord, we thank you for providing us a way that we can worship you in, in liturgical worship that is meaningful, that is satisfying, that is full of wisdom, that is beautiful, Lord. We thank you, Lord, for giving us that treasure and forgive us, Lord, if we ever take it for granted and allow us, Lord, to have renewed mind and a renewed heart as we approach you, Lord, in the liturgy. Lord, I pray for every single person that's here today that you continue to bless them and guide them and allow them, Lord, to focus on you every single day of their lives. And myself included, Lord, first and foremost, that I don't become selfish or, or, or just focus on what's in it for me, Lord, but I'm focusing on you and what everyone around me needs, Lord. pray all these things in your name through intercessions of all your saints. Here says, we pray thankfully, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Thank you all so much for coming to the well and hopefully we'll see you guys next week. Have a good week, everyone. This talk was brought to you by Upper Room Media. We hope that this talk has, through the grace of God, touched your heart. And we pray that it will not only inform you, but will also transform you and your life with Christ.